You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 35 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, October the 1st. First, I'll be talking to Alastair Leithwood, Chief Commercial Officer for IRI a world-leading big data analytics business that works with many of the world's household brands, food and grocery, liquor, petrol and convenience, pharmacy, in Australia. We'll talk about how the health and wellness sector has performed during COVID and how shoppers have responded. And I'll be talking to economist Sarah Hunter from BIS Oxford Economics. But now let's talk to Alistair Leithwood. Alistair, I want to ask you what Asia-Pacific IRO noticed about uh, consumer buying habits how they were influenced by COVID. And I noticed there was a big increased focus on self-care. Uh, was that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so look, we're, we're lucky. I don't know if you know IRI, but we, you know, we've got a good sense of everything that is bought across grocery, across pharmacy, across liquor stores and everything else. And we did see some fairly dramatic changes. I mean, look, I think the first thing to say is you've got to remember that pretty much everything went up last year, right? A combination of pantry stocking and panic buying and, and, you know, all of that stuff meant that there were huge rises across the whole space. So your benchmark is kind of 10%. Everything went up 10%, right? And some of them a little more, which means, by the way, that this year is going to be really interesting because 10% down is pretty much what everybody else is going to get. But health and wellness was really interesting. I think at the start, everybody thought they were gonna it was a really good circuit breaker stop the rat race stay home take up the guitar and learn to speak portuguese and look after myself yeah within about two three months that kind of fell off a little bit so using your word self-care that that covers a lot of ground right of of the top 10 growth categories quite a lot of them what we might call indulgences so ice cream, biscuits, chocolate, cheese, because that is an element of self-care, looking after your mental health by having a bit of fun. Uh, And you couldn't go out, so you might as well have some fun inside. Yeah, comfort food and a bit of treats. And you know what? You're at home, so you might as well make a nice lunch. But we did see a rise in things like vitamins, minerals, supplements, people buying a lot more of those things and, and frankly using them a lot more. I think in the hope that, you know, you boost your immune system, maybe you get to avoid getting ill. 
is probably the thinking there. So people would have been turning to supermarkets for health and wellness. Yeah, yeah. Supermarkets were the primary channel for that. So there was a shift from pharmacies and chemists to supermarkets. I think because, you know, when we were all nervous and concerned, we wanted to go to one place, get in and out and stay home. And so people bought things that they might otherwise buy in the pharmacies, they bought in the supermarkets. And people also go to the supermarket for things like chocolates and cheese. Oh, a bit of both. I mean, they would, yes, definitely. Yes, the chocolates and the cheese and the biscuits and the ice cream would have gone from the supermarket. But also the, you know, vitamins and supplements also did very well in the supermarket. Was there a trend towards sports and nutrition and things like energy drinks? Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting because that's a little bit of a, a seesaw, if you like. Sports nutrition, so energy drinks. You know, there were quite a few months last year, you'll recall, where you couldn't do any sport because you weren't allowed to which means if you're not doing sport and you're not going to the gym, you don't need your sports drink. Having said that, you still want to stay healthy and fit. And maybe you like the, the energy boost and the flavor. So yeah, look, sports drinks per se, um, energy drinks went down a little bit compared to everything else. But I guess high protein or what you might call functional drinks with vitamins or, or whatever, those things went up. What about plant-based alternatives? Went crazy, went crazy. So, so plant-based alternatives, you know, soy milk, almond milk, and even oat milk is, is growing way faster than everything else. You know, 50, 60% year on year growth rates. Um, there's a company called Oatly that you might've come across that floated uh, last month for $10 billion. Just make oat milk worldwide. And you know what? It just captured everyone's attention and uh, yeah, went absolutely crazy. So really strong growth. There. So how are these extended lockdowns now affecting customer behavior? Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit of a split. So what I think happened, you know, it, it's probably over time, the first few months of lockdown and, and for you guys in Victoria, there was a long lockdown. You know what? That That's a time to just get by and survive. So lots of indulgences. Now, I think the start of this year, everybody is starting to say, well, you know, we, we've got to look after ourselves and we've got to look after the planet because we've learned that, you know, the world's a fragile place. And so you're seeing healthy alternatives, but also you're seeing a lot of, you know, clean and green alternatives. So I think one of the drivers for oat milk and nut based milks is you know, a little bit less carbon footprint, a little bit better for the environment, as well as, you know, possibly better for you. So what are the big trends that you're seeing in the market now? Yeah, look, I think you need to understand what are the what are those uh, hot button trends and topics. So we can talk, you know, we've talked about plant based and nut milk. We've talked about, you know, bigger protein and and functional ingredients. You're going to see a lot of probiotics and, you know, all that kind of, you know, kombucha and all that good stuff. And then you're going to see another trend around less, less is more, less sugar, less fat, less gluten, you know, all that good stuff. So you've got to know those trends and then you've got to start to combine them together and, and build out your profile with consumers. You don't need to get everybody. You don't need to get fully mainstream. Oatly made $10 billion out of a 5% penetration, right? Not many people drink oat milk, but when they do, they drink a lot of it and you can build a whole business on it. Um, and then you need to figure out how you're going to go to market, partner, test and learn and yeah, hopefully succeed.
It's a big issue for the established company because it's a trend they weren't expecting and now they have to deal with it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, so the, your, your classic big blue chip FMCG brands and, and QSR brands, they've all been wrestling with this for uh, years now and it's only getting more dramatic. You know, if you're one of the big carbonated soft drink companies and mostly what you do is sell fizzy sugary drinks, and all of a sudden, nobody wants sugar. What's your business model? So there's there's a bunch of diversification into waters, into kombuchas, into functional drinks. Uh, and then there's a, a, an attempt to gradually re reduce the bad ingredients, right? Reduce the sugar, reduce the fat, uh, and make it a bit more acceptable. You've got a real problem there, though, because one of the reasons why you, you drank your Coke or you went to McDonald's is because you like the sugar and the fat and the meaty taste. You know, McDonald's has really struggled trying to sell salads and sell healthy alternatives. You don't go to Macca's for a salad, right? And it's uh, it's hard for them to make that switch, I think. The big question is how much of this is a fad and how much of it is a long-term trend? No, I think that it's a great question. It's hard to know. I would say that you need... Uh, so we sort of separate between a fad and a long-term trend, right? So I think an individual uh, product or category let's say kombucha, uh, I would say that's probably a fad. And I suspect we've already seen peak kombucha. You know, the, there's still good sales, but the price per unit is coming down. The number of searches that you see on, on people trying to investigate it has gone down from its peak a couple of years ago. Whereas the, the broader trend about probiotics um, and, and gut health and, and uh, trying to make your, 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 your life better, I think that's a long-term trend. And I think that will carry on for years and years. I think you're going to see more and more. So the individual product might drop. I think the trend will continue. So how did COVID change buying trends? I think there were some things that were already happening. We were already thinking healthy, clean and green. But I think COVID really focused the mind, really made us think, you know, what are we doing to ourselves? What are we doing to our community and to the planet? And, you know, you've seen a lot of people thinking around, OK, we've got through or hopefully we've got through this disaster, you know, this test. What's the next one? Is it climate change? Is it more equality in income around the, the country and the world? So I think people are starting to think about big existential threats so covid has changed everything absolutely there's been you know it's unprecedented uh, in i think our lifetimes uh, uh, an uh, an activity uh, a situation like that that shaped pretty much every aspect of our lives and what we eat and drink so what are the big trends ahead i think you'll see the health aisle in the supermarket get bigger and bigger it used to be a, you know a couple of bays now there's two or three aisles that are devoted to to healthy, to organic, to better for you, to sports nutrition. And even outside that aisle, you've got more and more products, even in the sort of mainstream, you know, classic consumer packaged goods. They, you know, if you look in the supermarket, you'll see call outs on pretty much every box, you know, 5% less sugar, 5% more protein, better for you, you know, better for the environment or all that good stuff. So yeah, I think the companies that manage to hook into that trend will continue to do very well. Well, Alistair, that's very informative and thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome, sir. Nice to talk to you. And now let's talk to Sarah Hunter from BIS Oxford Economics. Sarah, the uh, economists and the RBA are tipping that the economy will bounce back after restrictions are lifted, downturn is ended, 
and uh, the economy will be bouncing back strongly in 2022. Uh, but the question is, how effective will that be, given it won't be in a zero COVID environment? And uh, the questions are arising about how successfully New South Wales will be emerging from it. What's your view about that? Yeah, I, mean, I think that is the, the key question on um, most economists' minds at the moment um, that are Australia-based. Is uh, if we, you know, if we look at the timing of, of the easing of restrictions and, and what's going to be allowed, and we obviously have to make some assumptions for Victoria, but assuming it's not too dissimilar in terms of the changes that are made that what we've already had announced for New South Wales. It certainly is the case that we should see uh, at the beginning of the recovery in the December quarter. Just mathematically, if we start to ease restrictions in October, maybe in November for Victoria, there's, there's a lot of weeks of the quarter left for activity to pick up. And that will then take it higher than September quarter, where we've, you know, New South Wales, we've effectively been locked down for the entire period, certainly in Sydney and for Victoria, most of that, that quarter as well. So, yeah, I don't think it's a double dip recession on the technical definition of recession. But you're absolutely right what does easing restrictions look like? Um, and But first off, in terms of how easy are we talking, I, I think a, probably an important point to make is just what's been announced by the New South Wales government around, you know, you've got to be double vaxxed. Um, obviously, to take advantage, we have to get to the 70% rate. But even just that aside, looking at those restrictions, they kind of take us back, uh, we think, to what June last year looked like. This is not June this year. This is June last year. It's the four square meter rule for all hospitality, for all retail, all indoor settings. Um, it, you know, it's fairly, uh, it's less than that outdoors, which is obviously very welcome. We're going into summer, that's helpful. But you know, if you want to go to the shops, you, you're indoors necessarily. It's masks on train, all of that sort of thing. So um, it's not a, a quick bounce back in terms of the restrictions easing. And I think that's quite an important point that for many uh, cafes and restaurants in particular, that four square meter rule is a binding constraint. So that would be my first sort of thing that we're looking at and, and paying close attention to. The second thing, I think, as you, you noted, absolutely right. This is um, easing restrictions in an environment where it's not zero COVID. It's uh, controlling COVID. Um, and so that definitely looks a bit different as well. Um, we can certainly look to international experience to see what other uh, countries have done in terms of rebounding in a, um, a low COVID, if we say, environment. Um, the data there is is pretty promising. It does seem that people do get back out. They do get spending. Um, not everyone um, is concerned and, and remains, uh, you know, sort of tucks themselves away. But, but some people do. Some people are more vulnerable. They're more concerned. They're going to be more concerned about um, getting getting out and about in a low COVID environment as opposed to a zero COVID environment. So for me, yes, it's a recovery. Definitely. It is a bit of a bounce back, but I think we are looking at it taking through into 2022, the first half of next year, before we sort of get really get close to, to where we were before. So back to where we were in June this year in terms of activity levels. And then in terms of um, getting back onto that trend that we had in terms of economic growth for the economy I think that's longer again so that's the second half of next year perhaps even going into 23 I don't so it's a bounce back and it will look very good in terms of growth rates we'll have some big numbers coming through on the GDP for sure but um, that you know you got to balance that against you know where are we in level terms of, of economic activity. And how would that compare with other bounce backs overseas? Uh, so I think 
broadly speaking, that's an interesting question, actually. And it, it really does depend on a lot of structural features as well as uh, what you look at in, in, in terms of actual growth rates. So, for instance, in the UK, they're currently seeing uh, in year on year terms some very rapid growth rates. Um, and if you chart them, they're uh, sort of transitioned back from, say, April, May-ish this year, which is when they started to open up uh, through to now. It's been uh, really quite a dramatic recovery. And it looks like that in growth rate terms is going to continue. The thing for the UK that you have to remember is that it's uh, uh, services, particularly uh, consumer services, if you like, a disproportionately large share of the total economy. Brits seem to eat out a little bit more than other countries do. Uh, That sort of activity, hospitality, arts, entertainment accounts for a larger share of their economy. So if you open it up and let people do it again, you will automatically get faster growth. It doesn't really say much about how comfortable they may or may not be with getting out and about or um, the momentum or anything like that. It just tells you that there's a structural difference. So it's a little hard to compare, but um, I would say broadly speaking, we think we're going to see something similar to what we've seen in other countries, which is rapid growth rates, but it takes time for the level to get back there. It's rapid growth because you've fallen back so much effectively. The other issue too, surely, is that we have depended very much on migration to Australia. It's added to say to 1.5% to our growth every year. And uh, we, we don't have migration coming in. Our borders are shut. And uh, so what impact will that have? Well, yes. And that's, uh, I suppose that's another sort of separate issue, really. And that's quite, un- well, not completely uniquely Australian, of course, but Australia has been in the recent past, um, you know, much more in terms of population growth, much more dependent on overseas migration, and has enjoyed a much faster rate of population growth as a result of overseas migration than other developed economies. Um, everything I just said was sort of thinking, if you like, relative to where activity was in June this year. So pre-Delta, if you like. That June level, though, encompassed, um, to some extent, the impact of the closed border, because obviously that was in place then. Um, in terms of what the closed border means and, and how it's it's had a material drag on the economy, it's, it's very much um, in terms of that lack of supply of um, labour to the economy. Um, and we've seen that coming through in, in a few different ways, actually. Um, it's interesting to note that, again, pre-current outbreaks, employment of the resident population had already recovered at a national level to go beyond where we were pre-COVID, which was great. But if you looked at total jobs in the economy, they hadn't come back all the way. That's partly because there's slightly fewer people working two jobs than one. But actually, a much bigger reason for that is that all of those temporary workers that we'd normally have, the backpackers, some of the agricultural workers, that group are just, for obvious reasons, not here right now. And we're missing that that pool of labour. So, um, so we were already seeing the impact and we were um, not unexpected. And so, yeah, the, the, the closed border then does become an ongoing constraint. The other concern that we have around that is, of course, for the universities and um, for students in particular. Uh, those international students are a big source of demand. They, they clearly are not entering the country at the moment in the same numbers. And we're seeing, generally speaking, enrolments for many of the universities are down on where they were. So they're getting some that are coming through online, but it's not one for one replacement. That's a challenge. And that was a major growth sector pre-COVID. So that's something else that we're definitely monitoring and watching. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, the other issue too that, I mean, you raise this interestingly enough that, uh, people having more than one job, according to the latest figures. Now, I would suggest that might be because of the lockdowns, where people can't get to work, so they have to take another job. Well, I think probably worth keeping in mind is that even in normal times, many people will have more than one job. So the sort of anecdote to this would be somebody who's you know got their main job and perhaps they drive Uber a couple of nights a week. We count that as a second job. People were doing that pre-lockdown, so I don't I don't think it's right to suggest that this has suddenly become something that lots of people do. It it it, it definitely hasn't. Um, in fact, what we've seen, as I said in the latest uh, labour market data, is um, that we still have people working two jobs, and maybe that there are some people who've had to take on a second job because they can't do what, what they would normally do, or they've had their hours cut, for example. Um, but actually, the the average hours people have been working in second jobs has gone down. So, and the prevalence hasn't hasn't moved that much. So. It's not actually a new thing. That there's some change. I'm sure some people might be doing it that weren't before. But equally, there are some people who might have been working two jobs before that now aren't, and that could well be because they can't do uh, one of those two jobs that they might have been doing uh, pre-COVID. But that prevalence hasn't actually moved that much, so it's not a new thing. I think that's an important point to make. Right. Okay. Okay. But uh, the lockdowns will certainly affect the employment figures. Oh, of course, absolutely. Um, and I think what's really interesting this time around, in fact, is that we're going to see, uh, we're likely to see a much bigger impact on those employment numbers than we saw um, last time. So last year, uh, if I roll back to April, May, through the first lockdown. Um, and sorry, this is a proportionally bigger impact. Uh, so we've got, you know, just about 60% of the economy in lockdown, but the, the decline in, in employment is, is not going to be too far off what it was when we had the whole economy in lockdown last year that's because of the way the uh, the support payments are structured so job keeper the payment for job keeper because it came through your employer if you received that you were counted as employed because you were receiving income from your employer even if you weren't working any hours this time around with the disaster payments coming through services australia if you receive those if you don't work any hours and you don't get paid by your employer the abs is going to count you as not in work either unemployed if you're looking for a job or not in the labor force if you're um, at, you know, you're not looking for work actively seeking work which is going to be most people we think so actually the labor market data is going to be fascinating we think we're going to get a big drop in employment 
we think we're going to get a big drop in the number of people measured as in the labor force. So those people that aren't working any hours that are getting the disaster payment and that are not looking for a job, they'll drop out of the labor force. And actually, the unemployment rate might not move that much at all because people will go from being employed to not in the labor force and they'll not count as unemployed at, at any point in time. So it's, it's really interesting data when we get it this week. It's going to be um, a bit of a weird print that will have all of this going on with the economy. We know activities down. We think GDP is going to contract by around about 4%, but we probably won't get a big move on the unemployment rate. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. And of course, uh, the other issue too is uh, while we do get a bounce back, the big question will remain about how much productivity are we going to get? Yeah, and that productivity through the pandemic is an, an interesting one to track. There's uh, you know, pluses and minuses, if you like. Um, so they, the drags are, I guess, somewhat obvious in terms of um, you know, some of those distancing rules I just mentioned. If you're a cafe and you have to have the four square meter rule, you probably need to have most of your staff in. But you've had your capacity cut, and that's just a, a straight-up negative shot to productivity. Uh, so you got that on one side, but then we've had all these other sort of changes to the way we work and 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 how other sectors respond and interact. Particularly thinking of work from home and uh, improvements, substantial improvements in connectivity and use of technology, all those sorts of things. Those things can actually be positive for productivity. So oh. quite where it all shakes out at the end of it all, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but Quarters of quarter movements at the moment are very much dominated by restrictions, what they're forcing on the economy. They're not really telling us much about the underlying trends. They're really just telling us what's going on in terms of who can and can't go to work right now. Well, Sarah, that's all fascinating stuff. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the energy crisis in Europe presages trouble for the rest of the planet as a continent's energy shortage has governments warning of blackouts and factories being forced to shut. Inventories at European storage facilities are at historically low levels for this time of year. Pipeline flows from Russia and Norway have been limited. That's worrying, as calmer weather has reduced output from wind turbines, while Europe's ageing nuclear plants are being phased out or are more prone to outages, making gas even more necessary. No wonder European gas prices surged by almost 500% in the past year and are trading near record. The spike has forced some fertiliser producers in Europe to reduce output, with more expected to follow, threatening to increase costs for farmers and potentially adding to global food inflation. In the UK, high energy prices have forced several suppliers out of business. Even a normally cold winter in the Northern Hemisphere is expected to drive up natural gas prices further across much of the world. In China, industrial users, including makers of ceramics, glass and cement, may respond by raising prices. Households in Brazil will face expensive power bills. Economies that can't afford the fuel, such as Pakistan or Bangladesh, could simply grind to a halt. And Nouriel Roubini, renowned for foreseeing the mortgage collapse that helped produce the 2008 global financial crisis, said the post-pandemic world seems to be heading towards a repeat. My concern is that we are in a debt trap, Rubini, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Rubini Macro Associates, said in an interview at the Greenwich Economic Forum in Connecticut. When central banks are going to want to essentially phase out unconventional monetary policy, given the debt ratio, there is a risk of a crash in the bond market, in the credit market, in the stock market, in the economy, and therefore they'll be in that debt trap and unable to normalise policy rates. When the COVID-19 pandemic started to strangle the global economy, easy monetary policies and stimulatory fiscal policies were seen as necessary to backstop the financial system, Rubini said. But the results have been extreme. We're in a debt super cycle, he said. 
and eventually central banks are in a trap. And childcare giant, Good Start Early Learning, will make coronavirus vaccination mandatory for all employees nationwide, making it the latest private sector to make jabs compulsory. Chief Executive Officer Julia Davison made the announcement late on Monday that Good Start would insist all 15,000 employees in every state and territory be fully vaccinated by November 29th, making it the first in the sector to mandate the vaccine. And the Morrison government will pressure the states and territories to stick with the national plan to reopen the economy by turning off emergency financial supports to each jurisdiction a fortnight after they reach an 80% double vaccination rate. Millions of people in lockdown across New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT will soon have COVID disaster payments cut off as the federal government winds down the multi-billion dollar program to coincide with high vaccination rates. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg on Tuesday said as states and territories hit the 70% and 80% vaccination targets, the payment would be reduced and then axed as economies adjusted to COVID-safe conditions. The COVID disaster payment provides weekly payments of $450 for those who have lost fewer than 20 hours of work a week and $750 for those who have lost more. Those on income support have received an extra $200 a week. Since it was introduced, about 2 million people have received payment worth more than $6.3 billion. More than half of recipients are from New South Wales, with another 530,000 based in Victoria. And double-dose Victorians will soon chart a path out of restrictions when six regional areas begin a vaccination economy trial in October. Up to 20 vaccinated economy trials will test systems and support in the fortnight before Victoria is expected to reach the key 70% full vaccination mark on October 26, triggering greater freedoms for vaccinated people. Scheduled to start from October 11th, it is anticipated the trials will cover hospitality, hairdressing, beauty services and tourism, businesses and events such as race meetings, community celebrations and concerts, allowing higher patron numbers with, with all attendees confirmed as being fully vaccinated. The regional areas of Bass Coast, Greater Bendigo, Pyrenees, Warrnambool, Bull Oak and East Gippsland municipalities will be the first invited to participate in the trials. The government says it will work with local councils and industry bodies to help identify suitable businesses and events. And Australians will get behind net zero emissions by 2050 if the federal government provides more detail on how it's going to reach the commitment without too much economic pain, according to industries groups. While there are fracture lines in the coalition over the net zero pledges ahead of international climate talks in Glasgow in November, the public will back the target if they're shown the way and reassured they won't be left on the scrap heap. Business Council Chief Executive Jennifer Westacott said it was crucial the Morrison government showed how it would move in line with Australia's trading partners and investors to reach net zero by 2050. And Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison refused to commit to phasing out fossil fuels as a major climate conference approaches, while his deputy doubled down on opposing targets net zero emissions of greenhouse gases. Morrison is yet to make a decision whether he flies to the Glasgow conference. Australia, the world's top coal and a major gas exporter, is under growing pressure to come up with emissions reduction targets ahead of November's COP26 in the United Nations Climate Conference in Scotland. In interviews with Australian media after a summit in Washington, Morrison said his government was still working on its emissions plans, declined to commit to curbing fossil fuels that account for a major part of Australia's export revenue. He told broadcaster SBS in an interview that aired on Saturday night that he was not prepared to pull back any fossil fuel industries immediately. And coronavirus lockdowns have cost East Coast retailers almost $2 billion in sales, with warnings a pre-Christmas surge may be slowed by remaining restrictions and concern amongst shoppers about contracting COVID-19 in busy malls. Retail trade fell 1.7% in August on a seasonally adjusted basis to be 0.7% lower than a year ago, marking the third consecutive monthly decline as lockdowns in Australia's two largest cities crimp buying.
It followed a 2.8% drop in July and a 1.8% decline in June. August marked the first time the retail country sector had gone back for three consecutive months since 2000, ahead of the introduction of the GST that year. The damage has been done since New South Wales started introducing restrictions. Since May, retail sales in New South Wales have fallen by almost 14%, or $1.4 billion, while in the ACT they have cratered by 17.1%, with all of that occurring in August, when the nation's capital went into lockdown. Retail sales across Victoria have dropped by $450 million, or 5.7% since May, while Queensland has lost 2.7%, or $173 million in sales. The only jurisdictions ahead of their May level are non-lockdown states of South Australia, up 3.1%, and Western Australia, where sales have grown by 4.1% amid expectations of an AFL grand final-inspired surge in September. As has occurred in previous lockdowns, sales of food through supermarkets increased as people spent most of their time at home. Food retailing lifted by 2.1% in August to be up 6% since May. But in a sign that Australians have fully kitted out their homes, household goods sales dropped by 2.3% to be at their lowest point since the start of the pandemic early last year. Spending in cafes and restaurants dropped by 7%, taken back to May last year. And Telstra is planning to get rid of call centres. Nikos Katanakis, the company's group executive for networks and IT, said Telstra's T22 strategy had included big requirements for digitisation across its operations, with an entirely new IT stack created for both its consumer and enterprise businesses. However, he said the journey was not finished, with an aim now to enable every customer transaction to be handled digitally. He said the benefits of enabling 100% digital transaction was obvious, in that it reduced the number of interactions between customers and the company, which was cheaper for Telstra and preferable for customers. He said the era of needing to contact the company numerous times to resolve a problem should be gone for good. Like much of the technology innovation that has occurred in big enterprises in the last decade, a large part of the plan involves shifting a large number of business applications off company-owned infrastructure and into the public cloud environment of tech giants such as Amazon Web Services. Telstra has committed to having 90% of its applications running in the public cloud by 2025, which will give the company greater flexibility in how it operates. But it's less easy to achieve than it sounds, because it requires a lot of the applications to be transformed, so either modernise or replace with new ones. And housebound consumers in Sydney and Melbourne have spent big on gambling, home deliveries and electronic gadgets during the 2021 lockdowns. But binges on homewares and office equipment that mark the lockdowns of 2020 have not been repeated. Spending on online gambling in Australia's two biggest cities has peaked at 329% above the normal levels during the latest lockdowns. That surpasses the gambling surge during the last year's lockdown, which peaked at 215% above the pre-pandemic norm. Another pandemic boom industry, home delivery, has also surpassed previous heights. Spending on home delivery peaked at 203% above the pre-pandemic norm during the 2021 lockdowns, surpassing the high point of 132% above normal reached last time around. The consumption trends are revealed by a real-time spending tracker developed by consultancy Accenture and credit bureau Illion, which draws on anonymised weekly bank transactions of hundreds of thousands of Australian customers. It shows that a big rise in spending on consumer electronics, pets and alcohol evident during last year's lockdown has been repeated during the 2021 lockdowns in Sydney and Melbourne. But the splurge on homewares and home offices during last year's lockdown has been moderated. Spending growth on furniture, office equipment and hardware in Sydney and Melbourne has been much lower during the latest lockdowns. And Woolworths is doubling down on the COVID-19-induced boom in online shopping, launching a nationwide online marketplace that will take the fight to e-commerce giants Amazon and eBay in categories from appliances to toys, beauty and pet food. 
From Tuesday, customers using Woolworth's website or app were able to purchase more than 2,000 of everyday market products that don't sit on supermarket shelves like Nutribullet blenders, Big W products, Dyson vacuums and designer bums reusable nappies. Everyday Market will be integrated into Woolworths' current online shopping offering, with loyalty card members able to earn one point for every dollar they spend on new products. The move is aimed at leveraging Woolworths' customer base while broadening its retail offering. In recent years, tech players such as Amazon and eBay have been offering a marketplace for suppliers and customers, albeit with a limited food offering. Woolworths Group e-commerce sales grew by almost 75% in the 2021 financial year to $3.5 billion, with online sales now making up 8% of all sales, double the pre-pandemic level. At the same time, weekly traffic to Woolworths websites are up 40.5% to 17.2 million page views, driven by growth in apps. General Manager of Everyday Market Lance Earhart said Woolworths was looking to double the product offering within the year, eventually extending the grocery giant's virtual aisles to double 15,000 to 20,000 products typically carried in a Woolworths store. And furniture, televisions, electronics, toys, sporting goods and food are facing months of delays as port strikes across the country, triggered by a worsening dispute over union demands for more pay and control over hiring workers, threatened to cripple imports ahead of Christmas and further strain supply chains in the middle of state lockdowns. The the Maritime Union of Australia has this week escalated already damaging industrial action to Patrick terminals and notified that hundreds of wharfies will strike for 48 hours in Sydney's Port Botany next weekend and for 12 hours every Monday, Wednesday and Friday in Melbourne for the whole of October. The strike will disrupt Melbourne and Sydney ports already experiencing unpredictable shutdowns caused by the coronavirus, with Victoria International Container Terminals forced to close for more than three days last week due to four cases among its workforce. Patrick's Fremantle Wharfies down tools for 48 hours on the weekend, while Melbourne Wharfies stopped work off for 24 hours over the same period, in time for the AFL Grand Final. Every terminal, including Brisbane, also has to deal with various work bans, including on overtime and shift upgrades. Freight companies say the strikes are causing huge stress for retail businesses already hurting from months of lockdowns and international supply chain interruptions. And one in ten Australian jobs are at high risk of being automated, according to the OECD, with many in communities already facing large-scale disruption for global efforts to meet emissions reduction targets. Leading labour market economist Jeff Borland said the destruction of so-called routine jobs have been happening for more than three decades and will continue for another 10 to 20 years. Routine jobs, according to the Melbourne University professor, are those that can be precisely written down as a series of repeated tasks, which could then be replicated by computer code. Food preparation, handicrafts and plant and machinery operators are the most exposed, with 314,000 personal service workers making up the largest cohort, likely to face cuts, according to the OECD. Men, Indigenous Australians and young people were also more likely to face job losses. And a bidding war has broken out for Australian pharmaceutical industries, owner of Priceline, after rival drug wholesaler Sigma Healthcare lobbed an indicative non-binding and conditional cash and script deal valuing the company at $773.5 million. The API board said in an ASX statement that after careful consideration, it believes a Sigma proposal, if completely substantially in, co- in accordance with its terms, is more favourable to its shareholders than the all-cash indicative bid by WA-based West Farmers. It told investors to take no action and open its books to seek to conduct due diligence. And PwC Chief Executive Tom Seymour has launched an investigation into allegedly racist behaviour by two human resources executives after one mock Chinese accidents and another dressed up as a bat from Wuhan at a firm trivia event last Thursday. The firm has fast-tracked an internal investigation into the matter and engaged external legal advisers to assist in its response. In one skit, 
A human resources executive dressed as a bat from Wuhan, while another, a senior manager of diversity and inclusion, mocked Chinese accents. Mr Seymour said the HR team's conduct did not reflect the values and culture of our firm, and that he had communicated with partners and staff, reminding them to consider how our behaviour can impact others. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Justin Henker, a director at Shape Capital, the company behind Mind Biotherapeutics, an exciting Melbourne company doing pioneering work on psychedelic LSD microdosing research. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about market trends for the week ahead. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.